0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 30, Fort Sumter. At the very dawn of his administration, Lincoln received a message, a dire warning, concerning a federal fortification in South Carolina. At that very moment, Fort Sumter lay under a siege. The history of this fortification and its importance goes back to the Revolution. Way back in the Revolutionary War, 80 years previous to these events, the Colonials received a painful lesson in the second British assault on Charleston. The first attempted invasion hilariously failed due to utter bungling against defenses constructed in haste on Sullivan's Island, several miles due east of the city of Charleston and facing the Atlantic. However, the British capably organized a second attempt, which proved far more effective in turn. They easily cut through all opposition. With a combined naval and land force, the British captured outlying works and turned the safe peninsula on which Charleston sits into a trap. Frequently passed over in the memory of the Revolutionary War, this event not only left a considerable cultural legacy in Charleston, it also changed the course of that conflict itself. It revived flagging morale in England and Scotland, let the British forces go on the offensive in the Carolinas, and prolonged the war for years yet it also put into motion the campaigns that eventually led to Yorktown and the final American victory. Charleston Harbor held considerable economic importance in those days, and it remained so for many decades to come. Well protected from the worst of Atlantic storm, the harbor lay at just the right natural death for sailing vessels. Provided one knew the channels, it remained relatively easy for most ships to stroll right in and dock. Following the Revolutionary War, however, that convenience suddenly became a point of considerable concern and vulnerability. Later, during the War of 1812, temporary bastions and trenches added to the city's defences, though they went unused probably for the best. The War of 1812 made the weakness of American harbors and not just Charleston all too clear, however. The United States decided it could no longer ignore the issue for much longer. In time, fresh fortifications went up guarding Charleston Harbor and many others across the nation. Fort Moultrie, a defensive site originally built on Sullivan's Island near the mouth of the channel, was the most complete and livable for many years. Nonetheless, eventually its design became too outdated as military technology improved. Recognizing the need for improvement, the army built up a rocky island in the middle of the channel between harbor and sea. This offered both a powerful sword and shield against attack. The location lay close enough to mutually support artillery placed at Fort Moultrie. Meanwhile, any naval assault would have to run the gauntlet between the two, or attempt to stand and fight while navigating the coastal currents. In the event of an invasion, the defenses could also include additional cannon placed on the south side of the channel, or even in the city waterfront for additional firepower. It was an excellent plan. By the standards of the day, a fully defended Charleston could be made nigh invulnerable, even against the full might of the British Navy. So engineers began work on the then-modern pentagonal plan Fort Sumter in 1829. For the next thirty years it would guard the harbor, but happily in that time no new foreign threat emerged. When danger finally did arrive, it would loom from the very city the fort protected. In November of 1860 a new commander of these very defenses arrived in Charleston Harbor, the 55-year-old Major Robert Anderson of the regular army. Anderson was about as connected as a soldier can be. His father was a Revolutionary War officer. He served in the Continental Army through most of the war and afterward helped found the Society of Cincinnati. Post-war, he moved to Kentucky, which is why Robert Anderson entered the world there in 1805. Not surprisingly, given his family background, young Robert took an education at West Point and was briefly a classmate of Jeff Davis. Afterward, Anderson stayed in the Army almost his entire life, which made him something of an oddity at the time. Even though we haven't mentioned him up until now, imagine Anderson quietly and competently doing his job the entire time, including during the Black Hawk War and most of the battles of the Mexican-American War. By an odd chance, Anderson mustered Abraham Lincoln... During the Black Hawk War, twice no less. He commanded Jefferson Davis in escorting the captured Black Hawk himself. Yet Anderson never sought the limelight, although he found himself at the center of events more than once. However, with the static command structure of the antebellum army, Major Anderson never had much room for promotion further. Remember, the top generals in the Mexican American War were Scott and Tyler and they earned their fame fighting all the way back in the War of 1812. But Anderson's new posting was not entirely free of politics. As we will discuss in a moment, Secretary of War John B. Floyd busied himself trying to arrange things so as to sabotage the army. He selected the capable and reputable Major Anderson, in part because the latter had once owned slaves. Anderson came from Kentucky, and he married a Georgia girl. And yet, this transfer received the approval of General Winfield Scott, because Scott believed Anderson a trustworthy and loyal officer. Events would prove that General Scott's judgment was correct. By the time secession began in earnest, however, Anderson was no longer exactly in the peak of physical condition, partly a matter of age and partly the result of a long, hard career, much of which was spent in rough-hewn border forts. Under other circumstances, the warm, if humid, climate of South Carolina's coast, with its cool sea breezes, might appear a blessing in the last years before a well-earned retirement. Instead, Major Anderson found himself as more or less the literal crossroads of conflict, just as his home state of Kentucky found itself in the same metaphorical position. To understand the situation from Anderson's point of view, he had no sooner arrived than South Carolina repudiated the very nation he represented. Although he took no immediate action in response, South Carolina began raising and drilling militia, which probably concerned him. Suddenly, Major Anderson saw armed, unfriendly faces watching his base very close, day and night. The relatively comfortable quarters at Fort Moultrie began to look awfully vulnerable. If South Carolina made an attack from the landward side, well, Anderson might not have any chance to repel it. He was an experienced soldier and he could see the weakness of his command. Worse yet, he could see that across all of the so-called Confederacy, other army commanders were basically giving up and going home. When the seceding states rolled up with their militias, leaders of small garrisons or arsenals faced immediate and very difficult decisions. They might try facing off against a large militia outfit, but without orders or support from Washington due to President Buchanan's inaction... That was clearly an impossible choice. These handful of military officers saw themselves as citizens given a special job, not oppressors or rulers. They simply could not attack their own countrymen, a point which, ironically, called into question the entire point of secession. As a second choice, these officers could accept the matter of secession in the moment. When regiments of armed and extremely agitated militia turned up to demand the Federal soldiers hand over their arms and get gone, well... That was basically a fait accompli. Indeed, even if the militiamen chose not to attack, they could easily cut off official supplies or force local merchants not to sell to the soldiers, and the officers knew it. Politicians had started this, and therefore the soldiers would necessarily leave the politics to the politicians. In the end, most officers necessarily took this choice. It effectively handed over all of the federal military in the seceding states, including forts and armaments, to the rebels. That said, one additional option remained officers could simply defect to the Confederacy, and several men took the opportunity to do just that. Under the circumstances, many clearly hoped to get an early lead on choice commands and rank, others simply assumed that the nascent Confederacy would become permanent and decided to stay within it, or were specifically loyal only to their states. Some of them actively talked treason, others simply slouched in its general direction, however. Major Anderson's position wasn't quite the same, and that made all the difference. The fortifications under his command all lay on islands. This gave him two slight but absolutely critical advantages. First, he could receive supplies by sea, in theory, anyhow. Second, it would prove quite difficult for a very large body of South Carolina militia to suddenly surprise him and demand, so to speak, the keys to the front door. They would need some time to organize. That said, Given enough time, the militia would eventually get around to Moultrie, and the fort held little ability to resist that pressure for long. Anderson knew very well that exact intention was developing inside Charleston the beating heart of secession, which each morning awoke and looked out at the fortresses still flying the American flag. Thinking all of this over, Anderson sent a request into the War Department asking permission to transfer his command, his soldiers, his person and all their armaments over to Fort Sumter. There, a quick attack or intimidation attempt couldn't develop at all, unless the Confederacy armed a lot of warships they didn't have. In the meantime, he stalled with the growing threat in Charleston, trying to avoid either cowardice or aggression. Either of these could spark an immediate showdown that he couldn't possibly win. However, in part, he hoped to forestall that spark at all. If he decamped Fort Moultrie, Perhaps cooler heads would accept a victory and not demand more. Anderson was playing for time. It's interesting to point out here, too, that Major Anderson could probably have just packed it in and gone home. He had already led a long and eventful life. He needed no additional honors, and really, who would want their personal command to become the flashpoint starting a civil war? Anderson himself doesn't appear to have had much sympathy for abolitionism, and his native Kentucky was hardly free of secessionist sympathies. And yet, he did not. Having accepted the responsibility, Major Robert Anderson took it seriously, and unlike many others, he did not bend simply because it might be convenient. In Washington, however, the very pliable President Buchanan at least had the presence of mind to not just, you know, surrender everything. In the spirit of trying to maintain peace, however, he agreed not to send any reinforcements to Anderson, but he also didn't promise anything beyond that, and he never provided any clear orders, for good or for ill, to his remaining troops, including those at Fort Pickens near Pensacola, Florida. Ironically, this actually rebounded to Anderson's advantage. Secretary of War Floyd approved the transfer request, possibly figuring that this would make the task of clearing out the army troops easier in the end. Since no superior opposed the move, Major Anderson felt he had the full authority to move his small force over to Sumter, which, after all, was legitimately part of his command, anyway. This he did on the night of December 26th of 1860. Although it is not certain, he likely chose that day guessing that the Christmas season would give him a little breathing room, although, as it happened, the South Carolina militia were in no position to attack him yet anyhow. But in the way of politics everywhere... The speakers in Charleston were in a position to do a great deal of complaining over what they instantly declared treachery. I will spare you a joke about how, if anyone should do treason, they certainly would because after all, that would be childish. They did, however, hilariously demand that Buchanan order the troops back to Moultrie, which everyone with a working brain knew the Union troops could not defend. in retrospect, Anderson's movement turned into the first strategic decision of the war and it turned him into an instant celebrity in the North and a villain to the South. Northerners saw that, finally, somebody was taking action, any action, to forestall a complete collapse of the government, so they cheered Anderson publicly. Hopefully, the last full episode's comment about Lincoln's first learning of Fort Sumter may be forgiven as pardonable exaggeration. In reality, everybody who bothered to pick up the papers knew about Fort Sumter, Confederates, of course, rushed to curse Anderson's name as loudly as they could, amplified in the secessionist presses. Now at this point, Jefferson Davis is still acting as a senator in Washington, and he actually rushed over to the White House to berate the president. But Buchanan did nothing, and for once his legendary inability to make a clear public decision worked in the nation's favor. There was another side to his temporizing, however. Although still lacking in decisive leadership, Buchanan at long last had begun to realize that his southern friends saw him merely as a tool to be used and discarded. Though he never entirely admitted his mistakes, on some level he now realized that secession was no longer just a political gambit. But he also hoped to dump the problem into the lap of President-elect Lincoln. In the meantime, Secretary of War Floyd resigned over allegations of financial impropriety, No detailed investigation could ever take place as the war interrupted such business, but certainly Floyd authorized dodgy transactions with, at best, poor oversight. Following Lincoln's election, Floyd had become a sudden outspoken secessionist. His real crime, then, lay in trying to move large numbers of artillery pieces into defenseless fortifications in the South just before his resignation. Many of his actions in office before then remain murky to this day, with little clear evidence of his intentions. Buchanan needed Floyd out, and accepted his resignation immediately. The President went further, too, and authorized General Scott to make plans to resupply Anderson. The Major badly needed it, since he could no longer safely purchase supplies. The military designed the fortification to fight foreign powers, not their own rebellious citizenry, and had not laid plans or stores for sudden uprising or a hostile countryside. To address that oversight, Scott chartered a steamship called the Star of the West instead of a military vessel. He intended, of course, that the mission be peaceful and unarmed and therefore avoid any dangerous provocation. Like many, he believed that the issues could be worked out peacefully. And after all, would even the most hardline secessionist in Charleston attack a civilian merchantman? Unfortunately for everyone involved, Word leaked out about the proposed operation, and the Charleston militia knew exactly what to look for. It turned out that yes, the hardline secessionists would absolutely open fire on civilian steamers in order to starve out the troops ensconced at Fort Sumter. Worse yet, Scott was unable to get word to Anderson, the one man who needed information the most. By the time the Star of the West approached the harbor, Anderson's command seemed to be the only men on the scene with absolutely no idea what was happening. A militia battery, stationed on Morris Island, south of Sumter, fired on the ship, the Star of the West, which then turned around and sailed away. Anderson and his soldiers could only look on in confusion. They could only guess why the Carolinians were bombarding a civilian liner. And this is where matters lay until Lincoln's inauguration and the report he read that day. Major Anderson was running out of supplies, and therefore out of time. Without additional food, he and his men would face inevitable surrender within six weeks. This immediately put Abraham Lincoln and his administration on the back foot politically. The new president now needed to find a solution within a very strict time limit, and yet somehow avoid starting a violent conflict. Lincoln did not need Fort Sumter in the military sense. He needed to reassert the authority of the United States as a whole. But for practical reasons, including his stated principles in the inaugural address, Fort Sumter had become a position he could not simply surrender. He had promised to hold on to federal property, and obviously handing military posts over to rebels would look extraordinarily weak. Furthermore, the public response meant something. Everyone in the nation, north or south, now looked upon it as a symbol. And quite a few angry editorials were, depending on the location of your local newspaper, demanding it be held at all costs, lest the authority of the federal government collapse, or demanding it be taken at all costs, lest the authority of the Confederate government collapse. Plus, as a fortification at the mouth of Charleston Harbor, Fort Sumter held considerable strategic value, which becomes a concern if, say, hostilities were to break out. However... When Lincoln convened a cabinet meeting to decide on a course of action, the results were not encouraging. With the South Carolina militia willing and able to fire on ships approaching, only two options appeared possible—fighting or surrendering. General Winfield Scott, for his part, stated that he would need 20,000 soldiers and more to march on Charleston and relieve the fort, which more or less killed the notion of an overland mission— The entire army didn't have that many troops, and even trying to assemble that force would commit Lincoln to a path of war immediately and openly. Arguably, it would prove the federal government really was tyrannical. Some may have questioned whether Scott's plan represented a quiet despair or even surrender, since he was, after all, a Virginia native and resident. But in reality, the man remained a consummate military professional and utterly loyal to his nation and no one doubted it then or since. If anything, Scott underrated the danger and difficulty of marching across three states to reach Fort Sumter. That said, General Scott definitely fell into a panic over the subject. In short order, Winfield Scott will undermine himself by suggesting that not only Sumter, but also Fort Pickens, be surrendered to forestall war. Although Sumter lay under the gun, Pickens at this moment faced little threat, and the memorandum diminished his standing in Lincoln's eyes. With the failure of the original resupply plan by sea, however, there appeared almost no alternative except to give up the fort and get the most possible from South Carolina in return. The cabinet, though bitter, voted to go along with the informal request of delegates from Charleston. That appeared to be the end of the matter. Only Montgomery Blair, the Postmaster General, voted to relieve the fort. He believed that diminishing federal authority would weaken the Union cause and precipitate a conflict based on perceived weakness instead of avoiding bloodshed. We'll return to that idea momentarily. The Cabinet's near consensus on this issue may not have been entirely honest. Throughout this period, William Seward, as the new Secretary of State, played a political game behind Lincoln's back. He thought that he, Seward, could resolve matters, and perhaps make himself into a shadow president in the process. After all, this nearly unknown and untried Abram Lincoln fellow wasn't really in charge, was he? As Fort Sumter had turned into the crisis point, South Carolina dispatched a small commission to wrest the island from federal control. Although Lincoln couldn't and absolutely wouldn't meet with them, Seward quietly made contact. Seeing how the cabinet leaned, Seward made promises to the commissioners that Sumter would be given up soon, perhaps even within a few days. Having given these assurances privately, he may then have been tempted to hedge his advice to Lincoln to personal political advantage instead of the public good. Seward believed, or wanted to believe, that once he made himself appear the real power behind the throne, so to speak, he could turn that into actual power as everyone naturally came to him for solutions. At this stage, Seward drastically underestimated Lincoln. Now, it wasn't that he personally disliked the man, but Seward believed Lincoln indecisive and weak, perhaps a country bumpkin elevated far beyond his capacity. Furthermore, like many Unionists, Seward assumed, or wanted to believe, that if he gave some ground and outweighed the Confederates, he might win their loyalty back in the near future with a bit of political distraction. In this, he underestimated both the spine and Lincoln's back, and also the Fury building in the Confederacy. His scheming would come to grief for an additional reason, however, and that arrived in the person of Montgomery Blair. We explained earlier that Blair had no interest in surrendering Sumter, and he found exactly the right man to keep it, namely Gustavus Vassa Fox. Fox was a clever former naval officer, who in fact is about to become assistant secretary of the Navy for his excellence in energy. Fox's concept, though simple, meant sending a full fleet to resupply Sumter rather than any kind of ground force. This required a considerably greater level of organization and placed the Navy, a young, headstrong, and confident branch, in the commanding role instead of the Army. Fox didn't develop this plan from nothing. On the contrary, he traveled to Charleston in person, openly declaring his allegiances, and even talked with the secessionists themselves. Not wanting a confrontation, the local leaders permitted Fox to go over to Fort Sumter. He then made his way out to the fortress and talked with Major Anderson, with secessionists attempting to prevent them from speaking privately. Of course, Fox couldn't communicate any specific plans anyhow, as none had yet been laid, but he was already putting together his ideas, which he took back to Washington. With some modifications by President Lincoln himself, the final scheme in full involved refusing any threatening action and keeping warships well away from the harbor. The fleet would only take part if or when the South Carolina militia fired on the unarmed supply ships. The idea was designed as much for the public as for practicality. It put the responsibility for aggressive action on South Carolina. Ideally, the secessionists would recognize that initiating violence under those circumstances would destroy their support and then back down, because the fleet would represent more firepower than they could effectively fight. Accordingly, Lincoln held a new cabinet meeting, and this time the majority stood with him and Blair. Seward, abruptly caught out on a political limb and realizing that his sneakier actions would look very treacherous, now suggested deliberately starting a war with Spain or even France to try distracting the public mind from secession while abandoning Sumter. Lincoln didn't buy it and made no more than a polite response. Seward appeared to be flailing, politically speaking, and inspired no confidence. Lincoln openly informed South Carolina of the plan in his capacity of president of a nation that included South Carolina as one of the several states. This included, of course, effectively informing Confederate President Jefferson Davis, though obviously Lincoln didn't recognize his office or government, of the plan's with the hope of a peaceful but firm continuation of the status quo. Lincoln meant to give them time to reflect and calm down, so that nothing would occur suddenly and provoke precipitate action. Abraham Lincoln further hoped that Jefferson Davis would recognize that starting bloodshed would work against the Confederacy, and that Davis, no less than Lincoln, would choose peace in this moment. By a cruel and bitter irony, Davis chose war. When Lincoln handed Jefferson Davis a light in the darkness, it became only the final spark of the war. While Lincoln was fighting for the United States against the existential threat of secession, his counterpart Davis fought for secession against the existential threat of the United States. At this very moment, Virginians met to consider secession themselves with limited support, and many in the extant Confederacy found their own government looking rather wobbly. The Confederacy appeared in their eyes awfully prone to a quick collapse, and they feared that time would indeed play into Lincoln's hands. Politicians, opinion makers, and editors alike understood emotionally what they might not all comprehend rationally. Although secession seemed like a strong horse in the moment, given time and perhaps another election, and the energy would all drain away. Large sections of many seceding states were becoming politically aware and awake, in a way they hadn't before. On the flip side, in Virginia, secessionists seemed to be losing, so they demanded action in order to rouse the border disinterested. Their advocates included some mighty powerful figures, including two former governors. First, John Floyd, yes, that John Floyd, the very same man responsible for Sumter, but also Henry Weiss. We last encountered him in the fallout over John Brown. And the group of pro-secessionists included many prominent figures, including senators, journalists, editors, and many more. They believed that if a war could be started, many of those ordinary voters now on the fence or even outright unionists would fall into line behind the colors and make any political compromise impossible. And with secessionists firmly in control of state governments, they would set the terms of the new political reality. Or, as leading secessionist voice Edmund Ruffin himself put it, the shedding of blood will serve to change many votes from the hesitating states, from the submission or procrastinating rank, to the zealous for immediate secession. He knew of which he spoke, as a planter urging his native state to join South Carolina. He was also in Charleston at the very moment, and according to legend would receive the quote-unquote honor of firing the very first shot that is about to follow. Or, as one Mobile editor put it, "'Sir, unless you sprinkle blood in the face of the people of Alabama, "'they will be back in the old Union in less than ten days.'" But with words such as these from pro-secessionist men, well, that should give us some pause when assessing the real strength of the movement, and also the Confederacy. Secessionists were so fearful that their project was about to collapse in on itself that they were searching for an act of transgressive violence. That term may not be entirely clear. It's a sociological term identifying actions designed to break the established norms of a community. Transgressive violence is usually public, and intended to separate the offender from one moral community, but potentially strengthen ties with a new one. Secessionists hoped to commit some symbolic action to morally break with the old union. An attack of Fort Sumter would ideally rally all Southerners to the cause in the abstract, effectually staining the community's hands with the blood. At the same time, the militia in Charleston had ringed Fort Sumter thoroughly with cannon and were champing at the bit to open fire. If they did so without formal authorization from the Confederate leadership, that leadership's credibility could be fatally undermined. It could essentially destroy the Confederacy as an institution. On April ninth, 1861, Davis's cabinet met in Montgomery and agreed to commence the attack. Davis wrote out the order and forwarded the fatal dispatch to Charleston. A relatively young general with the unlikely name of Pierre-Gustave-Touton Beauregard received it. We are not going to discuss Beauregard right now, as we've got quite a long episode as it is and because we're going to have many opportunities to discuss his career later. The important point right now is that he quickly signed on to the Confederate service after being slighted, at least as he saw it, by the Federal Army authorities. His arrival in Charleston more or less transformed the South Carolina militia into an arm of the Confederate military, at least on paper. Beauregard will prove, despite many quirks and faults, to be a capable and cunning commander. He organized the attack on Fort Sumter with reasonable efficiency, given the lack of trained gunners and engineers. In the very early morning hours of April 12th, orders in hand. Colonel James Chestnut, himself one of the original Confederate delegates, and a small crew rode out to Fort Sumter. He conferred with Major Anderson. Anderson once again rejected a call for surrender of the fort, but he acknowledged that his small band was on the verge of hunger They would be forced to leave very soon for that reason alone. This time, Major Anderson knew that some relief expedition would come eventually, but possessed no good information on when it could possibly turn up, or if it would actually push through Confederate threats or retreat like the previous attempt. Chestnut returned to Beauregard. At 4.30 a.m. that same day, Beauregard ordered the guns to open fire, and flame and shot roared towards Fort Sumter. The man who fired that first shot was most likely a local lieutenant named Henry Farley, and not actually Edmund Ruffin. That said, it hardly mattered who fired the shot. For the next day and a half, Major Anderson mostly kept his soldiers under cover of bomb proofs, making a few careful retaliatory bombardments in return, but standing fast and avoiding risking his men's lives for no reasons. He knew full well that he could not achieve victory in this battle. Anderson and his soldiers were pinned down. They had no more supplies, fighting without support and without escape. The only possible hope lay in the arrival of the relief expedition, which began to trickle into sight during the bombardment itself. But the warships had all been delayed, and one even diverted by Seward's meddling. Gustavus Fox, leading the expedition in person, hoped to get supplies up to the fort during the first night. But that effort failed due to the bombardment and Fox made plans to do so again on the second night. By then, however, Major Anderson deemed it necessary to surrender. In the early afternoon of April 13th, he was down to his last reserve of powder. Fire had spread all over the wooden interior structures, risking an explosion of the magazine in any case. His fortress, built to endure the worst hammering any hostile European navy could deliver, crumbled under the weight of thousands of shells raining down from five separate land batteries. Even now, Fox held to his plan to run some supplies in under cover of darkness, but Anderson did not know that, nor at this point did it really matter. There was hardly a Fort Sumter left to defend. Anderson signaled for surrender. There then followed a ridiculous farce, where at first former Senator Louis Wigfall of Texas showed up having generously granted himself a military rank and carried out negotiations on his own hook, but pretending to have a commission on the matter. Following this nonsense, two separate delegations actually sent by Beauregard came over, adding to Major Anderson's irritation at having to essentially surrender twice. But in the end, it didn't matter. Major Anderson felt the insult, but he had to swallow it. Sumter's abandonment had become a matter of necessity, no longer a concern of dignity. Things were not quite as bad as Anderson feared, however. The terms Beauregard offered were rather generous under the circumstances. Many Southerners on the scene thought that the North would simply give up now, and hence from their perspective the fighting was effectively over. Anderson and his soldiers remained free and kept their flag and military honors. Anderson arranged to send off a final, soldierly salute to that flag. He had cause for some pride in this moment. Despite the sheer punishment the fortress absorbed, the American soldiers had only a handful of wounded men, and none seriously. There was not one death among his command. Anderson could also say with honesty that he had fought to very nearly the last powder barrel, overcome only by the sheer relentless quantity of shell raining on him. Those numbers unfortunately changed in an instant when, of all things, one of the cannons firing off the salute misfired it took the life of possibly the single unluckiest soldier in the Federal Service before or since, Daniel Howe. We should remember that name, for he became arguably the first man to die in the Civil War. Anderson, emotionally wounded over the loss of his command and having witnessed a young soldier pointlessly cut down, ended the brief salute immediately and struck his collars for the final time, carrying away the bullet shredded flag with him. By way of not forgetting... A second man, Edward Galloway, had received serious injuries in the same incident. He died several days afterward in a hospital in Charleston. Now, perhaps one day we'll come back and look at a blow-by-blow description of the battle, and next time we'll look at the immense political consequences which literally shaped the conflict for the next four years. But to close out, let us focus in briefly on Major Anderson, because he was and remains an American hero. Upon returning to the North, Anderson probably did not anticipate much of a welcome. He had, after all, just surrendered one of the last symbols of federal authority to a hostile rebellion. He experienced, by his lights, utter humiliation and seemingly accomplished nothing. And he leaned more towards the Democrats, if anything, and could expect little sympathy from the Republican Party now in power. Instead, he found himself hailed a champion of the United States, an icon in his own lifetime, which, as propaganda goes, has a very great advantage of being true. With the advent of war, he found himself quickly promoted several grades. He took on important work, too, with some deference to his age. He managed both recruiting and handling the politically sensitive matter of Kentucky during the next few critical months. Even after more or less retiring for the second time in 1863, he continued to serve his country on lesser matters, and will later play one final role on stage... In the legend of the Civil War. Robert Anderson gave his life for his country, even though he did not die in battle. He considered his fidelity greater than his private life for his personal amusements, and he spent much of his health and allotted span on this earth fighting for his nation. Without his quiet courage, we might not have a country today. So if you happen to be American, take one moment to thank him. Anderson earned it, and he asked for very little in return. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.